Someone said, you know, how do you deal with toxic people? I stop talking to them, <laughs> stop hanging out with them, I change, or change your phone number. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, and then this, I just love this because it's hit so close to home for me. Um, avoid them if I can and passive-aggressively snipe at them if I can't. <laughs> Don't you just love that? I mean, just the honesty. See, that's what these contact cards are all about. So our, today we're, that's our topic today, and our scripture reader is Kathy. And the reading is from Matthew 18. Today's reading is Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. It can be found on page 907 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive someone who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive a brother or sister from your heart. The word of the Lord. Friends, let us pray as we begin. Our God of grace, we look to you in this time and we hear these words. And we invite you through your Holy Spirit to make them come alive for us and for them to be part of how we learn about your grace, your forgiveness, and for how they draw us, whether we're doubting or struggling, believing, thankful or regretful or angry this morning, that how these words might draw all of us to you, that we might know that you are real and that we might know that you have made sure that we can know you and have you in our lives and share you with others. Do that kind of work now through as we examine these words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I I think one of the great depictions of, um, of a toxic person is found in the show Arrested Development. 
some of you are, are starting to think through the characters of that show, and you're wondering, which one am I going to pick? But I would say that Lucille Bluth is the, the toxin in the family, of the Bluth family. I mean, they're all quirky, and they're all all over the place on this show. But Lucille is the one who will, who will manipulate everyone for her own selfish purposes, and she'll set one child against the other by whispering things into their ear and whispering things, and all of a sudden they're fighting and they don't know why, and it's because she, she's, just, she's working everything towards her selfish advantage constantly. There's never this sense of a tender, loving, motherly presence in this family. And, um, and it's pretty hilarious, and it feels a little bit like a caricature of something. And yet, some of you here today, unfortunately, um, you hear what I'm describing, or you've seen that character on that show, and, you, and you're like, that is not a caricature. <laughs> Sadly, you have someone in your life that's way too close to home that has, that has just felt like that. And we get these people that are in our lives, and they're on some sort of spectrum from you know, annoyance all the way to just manipulation or outright uh, self-interest all the time, and we, we, you know, we try to figure out what do we do about it. As um, a friend of mine recently was telling me um, a situation about this, um, and she doesn't live around here, so none of you would know her, and I'm, you know, I'm not going to share names anyway, but she, she's basically describing this, um, you know, this relationship and how tough it's been recently. And then this is a friend. She goes way back to before I'm a pastor, and then she turns to me and says, what do I do, pastor? <laughs> I always love it when I get, you know, it always catches me off guard when a, like a friend, we're just chatting and then all of a sudden it's, no, I'm on the spot. And that's, in a sense, that's what we all want when we get in these relationships. We, we want to turn to someone and say, what do I do? What, what's the advice? What's the path that I can take with this person that's feeling kind of toxic? I remember in seminary, the professor of pastoral care had over a dozen years in psychotherapy um, and counseling. And he he said there was, there's something professionally that can happen as a psychotherapist if, you, if you're doing psychotherapy with someone one-on-one. And there's something about that person where they just push too many personal buttons for you and because of your story, maybe they remind you of your, your dad or your mom or something like that, and you just can't get that out of your head. And there's a point where, professionally speaking, the right thing to do is to kind of refer them on to some, tactfully to someone else because you're unable to be helpful as a therapist because you've got all these things going on in your head. And he, just, he said, you know, there was one time that I had to do that with someone. And in some ways, we're all hoping that that's something we can do is give ourselves that mental permission in relationships to, well, I think this is one of those where I need to tactfully depart. Like uh, some of those responses said, you know, um, change my email, cut off all contact. What do I do, pastor? Peter is essentially doing the same thing in this passage. Peter is coming to Jesus and saying, what if there's somebody really toxic in my life and they keep screwing up and they keep offending me? Um, what do I do, Jesus? And the way he frames it is in terms of someone wronging him and then how many times should he forgive? How many times shall I forgive someone who sins against me? Up to seven times? And he's riffing a little bit there on... And I think he thinks he's giving this, this um, expanded sense of grace and forgiveness when he says seven because the teachers of the day said... God forgives three times, and, but on the fourth time, watch out. It was kind of one of the go- ongoing theories of God is, is three, you know, kind of like four strikes are out, basically. And Peter says, well, let's go three and let's double it so it's six and then add one so it's seven. Shall I forgive seven times? Because he's sensing Jesus is a forgiving kind of guy. And then Jesus comes through with a shocking answer. He says, um, how about 
77 times. And what's clear in that moment is that this is, Jesus is imagining not just a, a fairly toxic relationship, he's imagining an off-the-charts, historically toxic relationship. And even there, he's not going to be the guy that gives out permission slips to cut, cut off the relationship and to head for the door. In fact, the idea today that we're looking at is that there might be a, in knowing Jesus, and in knowing what Jesus has underneath that 77, what's underneath that is something that if you know it, can work in your life against the toxins of our relationship, can, can move out against toxicity. But you have to grapple with the universal toxicity first and then the antitoxin of God's grace. Let's look at universal toxicity as we look at this passage. See, if you're going to call someone toxic, you've got to basically decide at some point where your imaginary line is. Where's my line of toxicity and who's in and who's out? Where is that line? You think about it. I mean, it's kind of easy to say, okay, I'm annoyed or this person puts me in a bad place um, or this person keeps doing the same kind of behavior and it just bugs me, it just rubs me the wrong way, I just can't think when I'm around them, I just get so angry. And somewhere in there you say, hey, you know, because it's such a problem, for sure they're on the other side of that line. Well, where's that line? You look at the Bible and you try to say, where, where do people fit within this line? Where are people? Where, who's so toxic that they're, they're unusable and that you just kind of got to cut off from them? And you look at the story and you can just take two examples. Take one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. You've got this guy, he's really toxic, and his name is Jacob. And he uh, is born a twin, but he's the younger twin. And so by law, all the inheritance is going to his brother. But he's got a name that already hints at his toxicity. His name is basically, we'd probably translate it something like shyster. <laughs> Jacob means heel, heel grabber or deceiver. And um, he definitely lives up to his name. He's constantly scheming in his behavior. He ends up stealing the financial inheritance of his brother by trickery, by deception. And the result is not only does he mess up his relationship with his brother, but he divides the family over it. Jacob. And what happens with Jacob? Jacob becomes the one that God puts this call on his life that through Jacob and all his children, there's going to be a new people, a people who are recipients of God's love and he changes Jacob's name to Israel, and they become the people of Israel that are God's people, that he's going to write this new story of love and grace into the whole world using them. Who's their founder? Shyster. Jacob. Deceiver. Schemer. Pretty toxic. God chooses him. Um, Saul. New Testament example, a guy named Saul who's going around getting the permission of the governments, getting letters from officials, and going door-to-door to hunt out and root out the followers of Jesus, you know, followers of Jesus who, who loved to meet together and pray and share their possessions and heal people. 
And this guy, Saul, Saul says, I'm against all of that. Door to door, letters in hand, and we read about him in the book of Acts. He was breathing out murderous threats against the people of Jesus. That sounds pretty toxic. Breathing murderous threats. And that's, that phrase is spoken of him right before God grabs him and enlists him to be the one, very similar to Jacob, the one through whom God was going to send out this new people, not now just in the Middle East, but out into the entire world, into the influential cities of the day, through Paul, who would become a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. That's Paul. Where's your line of toxicity? If you just go by some of these examples in the Bible, you see that God behaves a lot differently than us. And we've got a really second guess. Where are we drawing that line? Where are we drawing it? That same person, Saul, whose name ends up becoming Paul, um, he writes in one place in the book of Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Might as well say, for all are toxic and need the antitoxins of God's grace. And in this parable, that comes out loud and clear. As Jesus tries to explain, why 77? How can, how can Jesus have such an incredible, long... Uh, that's not what I want to say. How can he have such an incredibly inclusive view of people in terms of uh, toxicity? Well, he, he doesn't turn to Peter and give him a parable that points to, now, Peter, what I want you to know about that toxic person that you're thinking of, what he does is he says, now, Peter, here's what I want you to know about you. That's where it goes. And so often Jesus does this with us. We're so concerned about that, about this, about him, about her, and Jesus just gives us a parable to think about ourselves. And what that parable teaches us right on, right away, is that there's this this debt of epic proportions. That as you read about this, um, this man who's in the parable, he's a servant, and it says that he, in our version, the translation says, um, he owed the king 10,000 bags of gold. And either that, the way of translating that is either um, um, either like 60 years you know, salary or some people say that the way the Greek is structured there, that it's a way of, it's almost playful. It's a way of saying zillions, zillions of dollars were owed. Just think about that. So, so Peter has this question, hey, I, you know, what about this toxic person over there? And, and Jesus turns and, and, and basically looks to Peter and says, I'm going to give you a story to place yourself in. And he's doing that to all of us. And he's saying, place yourself in this place. You have an epic debt with the great king. You have an, just an enormous track record of toxicity. That's the starting point. Universal toxicity. Find yourself in this parable. Find yourself as being one who, unfortunately, hasn't escaped the pollution that is all around us. And it's not a very fun part of the Christian faith that you have to stop and realize if I'm going to draw the line, eventually I have to realize I'm on the wrong side of that line. And quite frankly, you want to get real specific, just think about it this way. You know, maybe think of like Peter was doing, think about you're imagining that one person that really just seems toxic to you. And now pause and think back on your own life 
and try to, pull, try to hang on to a time when you were in a bad place, when you were self-absorbed, and then think about how, you know what, there's a really good chance that you were exactly that person for someone else. Now you're doing kind of the shift Jesus wants you to do around universal toxicity. I have been that one. We, also, we don't stop there. You need God's grace. You need the antitoxin of God's grace to kind of come in and work and push out against you. Because we all fantasize about responding to toxic, toxicity with more toxicity. Right, we all have these fantasies. There's this show, um, most of you probably heard of, Breaking Bad. And Walter White is the main character. And uh, I know you're not supposed to give anything away about like season five or wherever else you guys are on that. I'm just at the beginning, so I can talk about the first couple episodes. And in one of these episodes, this, this man whose life is kind of spiraling out of control with his choices, one random thing that happens is he's just really annoyed with this guy he, keeps run, he runs into a couple times in public. He doesn't know him. Nothing really happens between them. But he, it's just a wealthy guy who's driving a wealthy car and talking into his Bluetooth about all this, this sophisticated, just, um, you know, he's just entitled and he's saying this nasty stuff and Walter is just so annoyed by it that the second time he sees him, he, he takes his opportunity and when the guy's not looking, he takes a squeegee puts it in the guy's sports car in just the right point on the battery and walks away and turns away and within 20 seconds the whole car's on fire. <laughs> you know? And then the guy comes out all mad and doesn't know who did it and, and there's this little smirk on Walter's face. You get the idea. It's like the fantasy of responding to toxicity with toxicity. How do you avoid that? How do you not go there? Well, you look at this story and you find the key in the antitoxin of God's grace. What is the response of the great king? What is the response of the great lender? There's a king. The debt has, has accumulated by this king who has apparently been quite the lender. What happens in the story? Well, think about it this way. Maybe you've had a debt. Maybe you've had a college debt. Maybe grad, grad school. Maybe you have credit card debt. Maybe a mortgage a debt, I mean, imagine like a really big debt from college or grad school, just in the tens of thousands of dollars, just it seems like you're barely ever chipping away at it, and it's just hanging over your head. Um, it's just there all the time. All your life choices are oriented around that. You can't do, you know, everything is just like, ah, oh, that weight, that burden, you know, everything, every decision you make, you have to calibrate, well, what, how's that going to work with the debt and all of this? It's just there. It's always there. It's a burden. It's a weight. You're in debt, and it's huge. Um, what, what kind of situation would it be? What kind of person would it be who might eventually, if this was, you know, if your fantasy and your dream would happen and the debt would be taken away, what kind of person would do that? Well, usually it's, it's uh, the only kind of person that would usually do that would be family, a family member, especially a parent or a grandparent. Maybe has the capacity, and maybe you have a little resentment because when you were building up this debt, or maybe you are, you knew someone else, and mommy and daddy were paying for theirs, but you're having to, you know, build up this debt, and you know, kind of, you could see that how that works out. That mommy and daddy sometimes. This king in this parable is not family of this servant. Far from it. The relationship between king and servant in ancient times was not at all like family. It was the furthest thing from it. But this king steps in and acts like family. This king steps in and acts fatherly about this debt. 
towards this servant. It was unheard of. And the servant is asking to be patient, and instead of just being patient and letting him pay it off, he wipes it all clean. He moves into the relationship with the servant and becomes a father, a wonderful father, a generous father, a good, forgiving father. Um, Do you know God that way? And have you let God come into your toxicity that way? It's a crucial step. There was a really toxic king in the Old Testament. At one point, King David, who actually is spoken really well of um, from, you know, after he died, he's spoken really well of throughout the scriptures. But he had a really toxic episode where he um, steals his neighbor's wife for himself and uses his power to make that happen while the husband is off in the battlefields. When she becomes pregnant, he tries to make it look like it was the husband's baby by inviting him off the battlefield. When that doesn't work, he sends the husband off to the front lines to die so that he can kind of legitimately bring in the wife and the child as his own. And he does the whole thing without ever kind of the pause and the reflection on, oh, maybe this is not the right path. And so a prophet has to come in, Nathan, and kind of awaken him to the reality. Very toxic. And this is a man who becomes known throughout scriptures as a man after God's own heart. And the reason that he gets written into the story that way is because of his response once his toxicity is pointed out. His response is basically what we read in Psalm 51, where he comes to God with his, all of his toxicity, and he basically says, come into my life and act fatherly towards me. I invite your fatherly love to be the only possible thing that could help me at this point. He says, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. He's feeling toxic. He's seen his toxicity, you know, close. And he knows what to do with it. And that's the most any of us can do. And thankfully, we have an incredibly forgiving, gracious God whose grace comes into our life and acts like an antitoxin against the toxicity around us. Um, and Jesus, the son of David, Jesus gets called the son of David because David's name remains untarnished. The son of David has the same mission with us. He's the son of God coming to represent the fatherly grace, the fatherly love towards our toxicity. And he comes, and when he's on the cross, he looks out at the most toxic crowd you could ever imagine and says, Father, forgive them. He's praying on our behalf, on the behalf of the most toxic people in the world. And he's lifting up their toxicity to the great fatherly forgiveness and antitoxin of God's grace. That's Jesus. In fact, it goes so far that if you're reading this parable and you see the very disturbing end of this parable, where the unmerciful servant goes into the torture chambers and, um, you know, I mean, it's just kind of like, Scary, shocking to imagine. And um, he's handed over the jailer to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. You know who already did that? What we know today, what people didn't know yet when Jesus was talking, is that Jesus not only prays for our forgiveness, but goes into the torture chamber of the cross on our behalf until, as the scripture says, until he should pay back 
all that is owed. He goes there for you. And the irony of this parable is that when Jesus told it, most likely, even more than we feel it as we hear that parable, even more than we felt like, how could this guy not forgive this lesser debt in someone in his life? You know, someone comes along with a, basically a four-month debt that you can pay off in, in about four months, and the guy throws him in jail because of it. And we look at that, we, how could he do that? So, how could he miss? He just was forgiven the zillions of dollars, and now he's, he can't forgive four months, or he can't be patient with a four-month de- debt. We see that, and even more so the listeners of the day. The point and the, the visceral reaction would have been, that's awful, that's terrible. And when it ends with him going to the torture chambers, everybody was, would have said, yes, that's where you go. I mean, if that's... Because, and this is, this is the point, God's grace is so rich and big and huge that if you're really experiencing it, if you've really caught it, if the penny has dropped, that you are toxic and you need to go to God with your toxicity and he can just become your father and act so gracious toward you. If you get that, there's no way you'd turn around and not begin to have some anti-toxicity towards the toxins of this world. There's no way you could start to go out and just be like, down with you, down with you. There's no way if you've experienced the grace of God. So then the issue becomes rooting your life in that grace, just, just going back to the Father. Have you gone to the Father recently with your sin, with your brokenness, with your mess? Do you have some things you just need to take to the grace of God and say, cleanse me with hyssop? And you know, Jesus isn't handing out permission slips you know, to cut off from toxic people. But I will say this in closing. I've counseled some people, and I think I would do it again, given the chance. I've counseled some people who are in really toxic relationships to cut off for a while. Because um, basically there was so much negativity and wrong messages coming in that they were just, they were like, they're filling the person's life. They're, they're, They're all they can see. They can't see the grace of God because it's so full of lies and toxicity. And so I've counseled people, step away for a period. Take a few months. Take a year. Remove yourself mainly so that you can connect with the grace of God, so that you can get filled with the antitoxin of God's grace. And always for this reason, if you're a Christian, always this reason, to enter back in eventually. And to be able to be a, at least a little bit of a force of anti-toxicity in a very toxic world where all, relations, all relationships have toxicity. The, the, the grace of Jesus Christ, as John Calvin puts it in responding to what this parable is all about, never gives up on anyone. There may be some extreme cases, just to add one more qualifier and then I'll pray. There may be some extreme cases where you can't enter back into a relationship with someone uh, this side of the grave, or they don't even want to, and it just can't happen. And yet still, because of God's incredible, forgiving, gracious love, you're looking forward to the day when Christ returns. And you can finally look at them, and they can finally look at you, and you can enter back in. Yet this side of the grave, 
the grace will always be pushing you more and more to make that happen, not to wait till then, but to make that happen as much as you can today. Let's pray that God will help us. Gracious God, thank you. Thank you for surprising us in so many ways through this parable with what, um, what goes against every piece of advice, piece of easy self-help advice that's out there that says, head for the hills as soon as it's tough. Head for the hills as soon as someone disrespects you. Answer toxicity with toxicity. Thank you for this challenging message, and I pray that your Holy Spirit will give us grace and power to respond by just rushing to you with our mess and being filled with the love of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.